You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. As we consider John at his Lord's side, we are very mindful of three events that Jesus specifically shared with John. And not just John, but his three closest ones with Peter and James and John. And the first of them was the raising of Jairus's daughter. Christ was the first to bring life from the dead since the days of Elisha. John, the apostle, had already seen other resurrections from Christ. He'd seen the widow of Nain's son raised. He'd seen Lazarus. But this one was special, as he records it. This one was special because he was right there. He was right next to it. He was just metres away. This girl was just there. And John, as he records this, remembers seeing a dead body, a body that had stopped breathing for some time, start to breathe again. I was there, said John. I was just there. And therefore he could write in John chapter 1, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The Lord of life was here. And the second occasion was the transfiguration. Peter, James and John climbed the Mount Hermon, the heights of that mountain, and were eyewitnesses of Jesus' future majesty. And it was almost certainly at night, and they saw Christ's face shine like the sun. His raiment was white as light, a scene of unearthly radiance. It was absolutely beautiful. With him were Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, and then together they heard those wonderful words, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. And in this transformation, Jesus had a foretaste of that state which was to be his beyond the cross. And that's why John could write in John chapter 1 and verse 14, we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Two amazing occasions. But what about the third? On that last night, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane. Deliberately a garden, in deliberate contrast to that garden where long ago the battle against sin had been lost. And we note the repetition, if we just turn back a page to chapter 18, verse 1, we note that there were exactly five specific references to this garden. If you don't have these coloured in, it's very worthy, worthwhile to get a pencil and do this. Chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the book Kedron, where was a garden? Reference number one. 
chapter 18, verse 26. One of the servants of the high priest, being his kinsman, whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did not I see thee in the garden? Number two. Chapter 19 and verse 41. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, reference three, and in the garden, reference four, a new sepulchre wherein was never man yet laid. And finally, chapter 20, verse 15, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, reference five, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Brothers and sisters, none of the other gospel writers pick that up. None of them. None of them talk about a garden. John does. Five times. And in the garden, Jesus needs to pray. He's about to be bloodied. He's about to be bruised and he goes to offer his last prayer to his God before he is arrested. And he takes three, Peter, James and John, with him a little further on from the rest. Peter, who literally just minutes before had protested, though everyone forsake you, Jesus, I will never, ever, ever forsake you. All these will fall away, I won't. And James and John, who just recently had said, Jesus, we can drink of your cup. We can be baptised with the baptism that you can be baptised with. No problems, Jesus. And he takes those three with him by his side a little bit further. He selected the three who had the most boldly professed that they would serve Christ to the end. And Jesus wanted them and he needed them at the time of his greatest need. I'm needing your help, he says. I'm finding this tough. Can you live up to your bold claims? And Jesus prays, please, Father, take this cup from me. And in agony, he prayed even more earnestly, brothers and sisters, sweat pouring down like great drops of blood to the ground. And in Jesus' anguish and travail, at the time of his absolute greatest need, they failed him and they all slept. And yes, it would have been the early hours of the morning and yes, it had been a tough week, but when Jesus needed the most, brothers and sisters, when he needed some support on this earth, when we needed someone at his side, they slept. Not once, not twice, but three times. Oh, John. And the occasion is recorded in Matthew, Mark and Luke, but John doesn't mention this at all. It's, it's not in this record. Why is that, brothers and sisters? Because he didn't see it. He slept and you might say, well, hang on, he didn't actually record Jairus either. The others did. And he didn't record the transfiguration the others did. And that is true. 
but for a man who dedicated the last nine chapters of his gospel to these events, wouldn't you have liked to read that prayer at the hands of John in this gospel? But he couldn't, because he didn't hear it. You think of John 17, which we read just yesterday in our daily readings, and the beautiful entry into our Lord's mind as we read a whole chapter dedicated to a prayer, one of the most beautiful prayers on record that just opens up the Son of God and his mission for us. Thank you, John, for recording that. Wouldn't you love to have read about the prayer of the Son in the garden in all of its details? But he slept when our Lord needed him most. So in these three events, John was taught with Peter and James, Jesus had power over death. He was Lord of life, as he saw in the raising of Jairus' daughter. Secondly, that Christ would reign in glory, not witnessed on earth, as he saw from the transfiguration. But tragically, they would not comprehend the cross that came first, the anguish the immediacy, and they slept. But the Jews weren't sleeping. Judas and the soldiers arrive, and if we leave something in John, let's come back to Mark and chapter 14. Mark 14 and verse 43. And immediately, while he yet spake, cometh Judas, one of the twelve, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And Jesus has already spoken about this. He's already predicted this event. And way back in verse 27, he'd already told them, verse 27, Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. You'll all leave me. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. In fact, Jesus said in John's record in chapter 16, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you'll leave me alone. And in fulfilment of that, in Mark 14 and verse 50, we read, And they all forsook him and fled, every single one of them. When the going got tough, the tough ran away. And Jesus was all alone. He did not have, at this point, a single friend. From here on, no man would be of any help whatsoever. They had all left him. He was on his own. Now when we come back to John, and we'll, we'll jump to John 18, we find that the Apostle John and Peter follow from a distance. John 18 and verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. 
that disciple was known unto the high priest and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. So John, it's certainly John, John the other disciple was known to the high priest and the servants. And so he got in and he let Peter into the palace as well. And the servant says in verse 17, Hey, you, aren't you also one of them? Aren't you also one of his disciples? So she knew that John was a disciple. John had always witnessed. He had always been open. He had always been happy to proclaim, I am of Christ. And he still was. Even in the house of the high priest, even on Christ's arrest. Yeah, I'm a disciple. But what did Peter do? No, I don't know the man. Who are you talking about? Jesus, who's that? I've never heard of him before. And in the pressure of the situation, Peter rejects his master. Not so, John. Have you noticed John's resolve? Have you ever contemplated what this man did right to the end? He was there in the palace right at the end. And then if we pick up our reading, which happens to be today's daily reading, by a special coincidence. John 19. And we might pick it up in verse 16. Then delivered he them, him, therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. They took Jesus. And that word took there, John only uses three times in his gospel. The first of them was all the way back in chapter 1 when he says in verse 11, he came unto his own and his own received him not. It's the same word. They rejected him in chapter 1. They received him not. But John says, not here they didn't. They were very happy to receive him. They took him and they led him away to crucify him, says John. What disgraceful irony. They had rejected him and then received him to kill him. And Simon of Cyrene helped carry the cross. Not Peter, not John. John would have watched this. He would have seen that from afar. He would have thought, that should be me. It could be me. I wish it was me. I want to help Christ carry his cross, but he didn't. And another man carried that to Golgotha. And they crucified our Lord Jesus Christ, the plan, the logos, the destiny, the word made flesh, the word tabernacled amongst us. It dwelt with us and his family, his people, killed the word tabernacling amongst us. And in chapter 19 and verse 19, Pilate writes a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. 
verse 20, this title was read, many, read by many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin, three languages, Jesus dying for people from all nations, everyone could read it, here is the King of the Jews. And finally, after all of that, John comes to the foot of the cross, the only one, the only one of the twelve. Every other chosen disciple had abandoned their Lord, and John is there watching his master, watching the nails through the dark of the time. And as he looks up to Christ on the pole, he notices two other people, one on his left, one on his right, criminals, robbers. And his mind goes back and he thinks, that's where I wanted to be with my brother James. We wanted to be there, we wanted to be on his left and his right that was our ambitious goal, to be on his side. And I've let him down, and my brother's not even here. Weren't we undeserving of that place? And it's as if Jesus is saying, John, if you want to rule with me, you have to start at the foot of the cross, not by my side. We read in John 19 and verses 23 and 24 that they split up his clothes, casting lots for the one-piece seamless tunic. Brothers and sisters, since the time that Mary had first wrapped her newborn in swaddling clothes, don't you think she would have dressed him ever since? Every year, maybe, there would have been a new cloak, some new garments, the Son of Man would never wanted a new coat from his mother. Had she made this one-piece tunic for him? Did she watch them part Jesus' clothes that she had provided him over the years? Did she watch as the four soldiers triumphantly take the seamless tunic and by lots cast and work out who would take it home? And one of them triumphantly takes it and runs away. The cloak that she had lovingly made for her son. Imagine Jesus watching his clothes being taken by others. There's nothing more final than that, is there? I won't be needing them again. And as the garments had been given to him from swaddling clothes through to his final maturity, so garments were given back. Jesus hadn't been born with anything. He hadn't owned anything. He didn't die with anything. Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked he returned. Now in John 19 and verse 25, we find John with four women, Verse 25, there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, 
Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and fourthly, Mary Magdalene. And brothers and sisters, the astute John mentions Jesus' mother five times. And if you've got another colouring pencil, it's, it's worthwhile colouring them in too, because a pattern is emerging. Verse 25, there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, first reference. And his mother's sister, second reference. Mary, the wife of Cleopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother, third reference. And the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, fourth reference. Woman, behold thy son. Then he saith to the disciple, Behold thy mother. Five references. Surely deliberate. And brothers and sisters, I just feel that John's mind did this deliberately as an echo for the start of the Gospels. The other three Gospels had already been written. John had read them. John was conversant with them. He knew what they wanted to achieve. And he's, he's creating an echo here, right at the end of the four Gospels, with the start. Come back with me to Matthew chapter 2. Just leave something in John. Come back with me to Matthew and chapter 2. You're going to need another colour. Matthew 2 and verse 11. When they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. They saw the boy Jesus with Mary. If you're colouring, colour that in. The young child with Mary, his mother. Verse 13. And when they departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother, Second reference. Verse 14, so he arose and he took the young child and his mother. Third reference. Verse 20, saying, arise and take the young child and his mother. Fourth reference. And verse 21, and so he arose and took the young child and his mother. Five references. And John is creating a picture here. He's, he's tying together the start of the Gospels with the end. And so we see this composite picture of five references to the woman. In Matthew 2 and John 19. Five references to the son, the seed, the seed of the woman. Five references to the garden. John is recreating an Old Testament picture. He's deliberately recreating the picture of Genesis 3 with the number of grace. Genesis 3 is being fulfilled and the serpent was about to bruise the head, the seed rather, of the woman's heel. But before the serpent would have its short-lived victory, a carer for Jesus' 
mother needed to be found. If we come back to John 19, we find in those wonderful verses that we've perhaps already coloured that he says, Woman, behold thy son, and to the disciple, behold thy mother. And so he appoints his first cousin John, his confidant, the one he loved, the one who perhaps got him the most, the one he could most closely relate to, to care for his mum. And now the Son of Man could die, knowing that his mother would be looked after. And John would have cared for her his whole life. There's no record of John travelling on great missionary journeys while Mary was still alive. He generally stayed at home. And surely he provided for her. Surely he looked after her. Surely he cared for her in her age. Surely he was present when she died. Surely he buried her. And surely the son looked down from his father's right hand and said, Thank you, John. You know, the only woman that John refers to as a mother in his entire gospel, is Mary. The, the only woman that he refers to as a mother is Mary. There's only one other mention, it's, it's, it's a conceptual reference in John chapter 3 by Nicodemus about a man going back into his mother's womb. Every other mother in John is talking about Mary. Even his own mother, Salome, at the cross is titled Mary's sister. The only mother is Mary. And that's the respect that he had for the mother of the Son of God. And then in verse 30 of John 19, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. He hears the last cry. And then there's no more breathing. The other records merely state that there was a loud cry. John records what Jesus said. It is finished. Why? Because he was there. He heard it. And we know that. Let's come down to verse 35. He that saw it, bear record. I was there, he says. You can believe me because I was an, I was an eyewitness. His record is true. He knoweth that he saith true. what he saith is true, that ye might believe. I was there, says John. I heard Jesus say that. It is finished. And John could later write in 1 John 3, verse 16, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. And John watched it. Every single breath, every cry, he heard it and he felt it and he saw the breathing stop and he saw his Lord die for him. And so as we stand with John at the foot of the cross, we see the kindest, most noble, most wonderful, most upright man who had ever lived who spent his life in service to others, who spent his life in service for us, die 
on a stake. And they laid him in a tomb, and finally the Son of Man had somewhere to lay his head. But the story doesn't stop there, does it? The story of John, the story of Christ, the story of our redemption doesn't finish with a dead king. Because very, very, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, no one else was moving, the city was quiet, a woman got up, Mary Magdalene, and went to the tomb. And the tomb would have been dark, and it would have been hard, and probably cold, and desperately unwelcoming, but the tomb was empty. And she runs to Peter and John. They've taken him away, the Lord, out of the sepulchre. We don't know where they have laid him, she says. And so Peter and John run to the tomb. Let's pick that up in chapter 20 and verse 6. Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulchre and seeth the linen clothes lie and the napkin that was about his head not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. They run to the sepulchre, to the tomb, and they see it's empty as well, because the tomb could not hold the Son of God. But John goes further than that, because John's perceptive and he gets it. Look at how he describes the state of the tomb. Verse 6, Then cometh Simon Peter following him, went into the sepulchre and he seeth the linen clothes lie and the napkin that was about his head not lying with the linen clothes but wrapped together in a place by itself. John is very careful to record what happened. So the linen body clothes that covered Christ's whole body were just laying there by itself. It's almost like your teenager has got up on a Sunday morning and thrown his pyjamas on the bed if they get there. They're just, the linen clothes are just there. But not so the head. The head has been carefully, intricately wrapped up, roll by roll by roll and carefully placed in a place all by itself. John got that. And John got that the head was now clearly and discernibly different from the body. Christ the head is now the king of the world. He towers above the body in importance. And he's alive forevermore. And later on in our memorial service we'll have some choral pieces that will allow us to, to celebrate and to, to meditate on that resurrection. And so, brothers and sisters, as Adam had slept and given life to Eve in Genesis 2, so Christ had slept and facilitated life for his bride, even life eternal. And Peter and John believed and they went home. And we too can believe. Like them at that point, we haven't seen our Lord, have we? But we believe. We know. We know he is alive. And this morning we have as a token of his life 
of his presence, the bread of his body, and the wine of his life-giving blood. Our absent Lord is with us even now. He was dead, but he is alive again. Thank you. Time came in John's life to write his gospel and he wanted to write a record of the gospel of the Son of God. And there had been three written already and John would have in his life told so many people, so many stories of the things that he encountered with his master. And I'm sure a lot of people said to John, John, you need to write that down. So he picked up his pen and he thought, what do I want to achieve? You see, there were three gospel records already. There's, there's Matthew. And Matthew has a particular emphasis. His emphasis is on the kingdom of heaven, including in many of the parables. We know and love them. Matthew draws on so, so many Old Testament passages. He's rooted in the Old Testament. He has a long and detailed genealogy through Joseph of who Christ is and where he came from, as well as extensive details of Christ's birth and accountants love details. He portrays the king, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne. He has a prophetical style with Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment. And John says, okay. And then there's Mark. And Mark has a different perspective. He wrote from a servant's view, that ox view. So he wasn't interested in genealogies because servants don't have them. He omitted all of that heritage. There's very few Old Testament references in Mark. There's verbally energetic text with a lot of pace. He records miracles and acts of love, acts of service, acts of kindness, acts. He portrays the suffering servant, the ox phase, in a very practical style. And John notes that. And then there was Luke. And Luke, well, he loved details too. He set it all out in order in a very systematic manner. He too had a long genealogy where Christ came from, all the way down through Mary. Luke had lots of social events. He was interested in people, interactions with people, interactions with sinners 
a focus on humanity. He portrays the perfect man, the man phase. He had a historical approach. And Matthew and Mark and Luke were all narrative stories. They're called the synoptic gospels, as we know, because they all had the same view. They came from the same eye, the same viewpoint. They all deal with external acts. And John wanted to do more than that. That style wasn't John's. He wanted to be more than narrative. He wanted concepts more than records because his his style was spiritual. So he wanted to give us glimpses of the inner life and spirit of the Son of God. Rather than dealings with men, it's about the Son's relationship with the Father. John wants to show us just how he came to believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and the Messiah. So John put together a structure that looks something like this. First of all, he starts with a prologue, which is what our brother Sam has read for us tonight. Prologue, of course, is an opening to a story that establishes context and where the story is going gives all the background details. And then there's an epilogue, of course, in chapter 21. The end bits brings closure to the work and balances the prologue. And then there's a structure. And it is perhaps difficult to categorically define a definitive structure for the book of John, but this is a simple one. There were firstly signs seven of them, where John presented the thoughts of Christ. And then there were sayings, many of them. For example, a new commandment I give unto you. And then there were sorrows, as Jesus' arrest takes him to the cross. And within this structure, there's just beautiful symmetry So as you know, at the start of that structure, it started with a sequence of seven days, all carefully paced out, culminating on the seventh day with the wedding in Cana. And John does exactly the same thing at the end of his book, in chapter 12, verse 1. He says, there were six days until Passover, in which case the Passover was the seventh day. So he started with a week of detail and he finished with a week of detail in this beautifully laid out, balanced, symmetrical record. And then he decides that he's going to specify the four Passovers during Christ's ministry. Is the only one to do that. The other three don't. And accordingly, because of that, there's three and a half years of his ministry, four Passovers, six months in, all the way through to the last one. Accordingly, because his gospel is rooted in the Passovers, tying it down, as well as Purim and Tabernacles, 
His gospel is rooted in Jerusalem. That's the scene of his text. Zion, the city of the great God. The other three don't do that. Their books cover a little bit of Jerusalem, but are based in Galilee. So John picks Zion as the setting for his presentation for the Son of God. And then he presents some of the most truly remarkable, wonderful themes in all of Scripture. He presents things like love and witness, truth and belief, the world, the cosmos, life, abiding. We read that yesterday. And light. And he does that, brothers and sisters, with a unique emphasis that is second to none. You have a look at this. Here's love, agape love. It's used 43 times in John. That's 50% more than the other records combined. Agape love. That's what he's about. And witness. Witnessing Christ. John witnessing Christ. Bearing witness 47 times compared to seven in the other three combined. Truth. What a beautiful concept. 25 times compared to seven in the others combined. Ye shall know the truth, says John. Believe. Around 100 times, John talks about the need to believe. Three times as many as the other Gospels combined. The world, that classic word, the cosmos, the constitution of things, the constitution that Christ came into 79 times, five times as many as the others combined. And life, 36 times, over twice as many as the others combined. I am the bread of life. And abide, stay with me, says Jesus. Don't leave me. Don't go somewhere else. Stick with me. 41 times, more than three times the others combined. And finally, light. I am the light of the world. 23 times, nearly twice as many as the others combined. Do you get where he's going? He's not interested in stories. He wants to deal with the important things, with gravity. He wants to get the real important things of life. He sacrifices narrative for principles. And these things don't really warrant much of a mention in the other Gospels. You've seen the charts. They're dealing with narrative, with events, with externalities, all of which are very, very important. And John says, I want to give you more. I want to tell you what Christ was like. And in doing that, brothers and sisters, he's very black and white. You know that. You know, when you go to the other three synoptic Gospels, 
And when they reference Christ speaking, they'll say, Verily I say unto you, every single time. And John never says that, ever. He always says, Verily, verily I say to you. It's almost like he's underlining bold, big fonts. These are words of Christ, and he says that every single time on all 25 occasions. None of the other Gospels do that. He is so black and white. And he focuses on truth and error, right and wrong, including doctrines and morals. Have a look at this list of simple contrasts just in John. With John, there's light and darkness. There's law and grace. There's flesh and spirit. That which is flesh is flesh, he says. That which is spirit is spirit. There's life and there's death. There's true witness. There's false witness. There's meat that perisheth. There's meat that abideth. You can be beneath or above. You can lose your life or you could keep your life. There's sin and righteousness, sorrow and joy. Sins can be forgiven or sins can be retained. And with John, it is simply that black and white. You can't have both. There's no grey in John. It's black or white. With John, brothers and sisters, you don't go to the Ecclesial Hall on Sunday morning and go to Adelaide Oval in the evening. John's consistent. John's black and white. He knows what's right and there's no grey. Is there? And John says, make a call. You can't have both. You can try to walk a tightrope between the two kingdoms and not really find peace in either. Flesh is flesh, and spirit is spirit. And then he builds more. On top of that, we're going to have eight signs, specially selected signs. He says at the end, Christ did heaps and heaps more, perhaps hundreds of them, but I have picked these eight so that you might believe. Wonderfully to think about it, isn't it? That John doesn't do stories. Doesn't need stories. In fact, the word parable, the Greek word parable, is not in John at all. At all. And his signs, his stories, are for real life experiences with real life people. John says, I don't need stories. I deal with reality. And he doesn't even use the word miracle or miracles or dynamis as the Greek word is. He's almost saying that miracles were mere shows of power, hardly significant. We all know Christ had the Holy Spirit without measure. We know he can do these things. What John wanted to show was why Jesus did what he did, what he was thinking, what his motives were. 
there was a deeper significance that lay beyond the physical event itself. And then he says, I'm going to add exclusively, because none of the others covered them, the seven I am statements. Absolutely incredible. I am, said Jesus, the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life, as we've just sung. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. Stick with me. Don't leave. Abide. These tell us about Christ's purpose, who he was, what he achieved, and wouldn't we be the poorer without these? And finally, John says, I'm going to root my gospel as well in the Old Testament. And I'm going to cover all of these amazing things that all of my readers know only full well, the creation of the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1, 2 and 3. We're going to reference Abraham. We're going to reference Jacob and Moses and the law and manna, the serpent and the tabernacle and the temple. And he does that for a single purpose, to show that Christ superseded all of that. That all of those types and shadows, because that's all they were, saw their fulfillment in the wonderful, beautiful Son of God. Wow, what a book. Definitively different from anything else, the product of a spirit mind. But John's pen is still in the air. He thinks to himself, how am I going to start? He wasn't just going to write narrative. He's dismissed that. That exists, and he didn't need that. And his mind is higher than that. And so he writes, in the beginning, God had a plan. In the beginning was the Word. John chapter 1, verse 1. Let's read it. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And we can pick up the sense of this most magnificent of verses. The little quote on the screen from Psalm 90 which just echoes the history, the depth, the magnitude of what John's describing here. Psalm 90 verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, way, 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 way back, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Your plan's been here. Your purpose has been here. In the beginning was the word. And John uses the Greek word logos. It's the root of our word logic. It suggests knowledge and wisdom. And we see in this word a, a word I think we know quite well. We see in this word a plan a predetermined purpose, full of meaning, 
and pattern, a ruling principle in the universe, the essence of God's purpose, and the fountain of all reason. And Brother John Carter, who we are so indebted to for his most simple but most profound lines, writes, A word reveals thoughts, and the word of God is the revelation of his purpose. Wow. You know, when we speak, when I speak, I'm telling you what I think. When God speaks, he reveals his purpose. That is the Father's Logos. His word, his purpose is revealed when he speaks. And so we read there in John chapter 1 verse 1, In the beginning was the Logos, and the word was with God, and the word was God. What a beautiful verse. In the beginning God had Jesus in mind right all the way, 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 way back. So he puts the gospel message in its eternal context. This wasn't dreamt up in Genesis 3 as an afterthought. He says, this was from the beginning, in the plan, in the purpose. And the word was God. Let's embrace that concept, brothers and sisters. It was part of him. It had its source in him. It expressed him. And the word was God. What God said, what he planned, what he purposed, what he proposed, was so integral with God that it was God. And John got that. And that's how he decided to start his book. Now verses 2 to 3 in this chapter are in parentheses or brackets and verse 14 continues on the subject of John and we can illustrate that very easily. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, the Word was with God, the Word was God, verse 14, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's John's flow. So all the verses in between, from verse 2 to 13, we can put in brackets. They're a side discussion, an exploration by John. So when we come to verse 14, John takes this concept even further. He now tells us that this word, this plan, this logos, became flesh. The land became flesh and dwelt among us. So John doesn't present a human genealogy through Joseph like Matthew did. He doesn't omit one like Mark did. He doesn't present one through Mary like Luke did. Instead, what John comes along and what he's just done for us is he presents the divine genealogy of Jesus Christ where he came from, from God, where his origins were, where he all started, not in Mary's womb, not with Adam, but way, way, way back in the plan, the Logos that the Father had. And in so doing, he's revealing the plan, the Logos, the purpose, 
and how it became, it was made flesh and God was manifest. It reveals with beautiful and intimate insight the divine characteristics of Christ, the eagle face. And it completes the four faces, doesn't it? Soaring above us with penetrating vision, the divine eagle aspect. Now let's just briefly go back and look at the verses in brackets. So we jump back to verse 2. We find that verse 2 simply repeats verse 1. The same was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. So here we have another link to creation. All things were made by him. We know those verses. We know those words. We've read them hundreds of times. Genesis 1, 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over all the earth, all things. Psalm 8, what a beautiful psalm. Thou hast put all things under his feet. John 3, the Father loveth the Son and have given all things into his hand. 1 Corinthians 8, our Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things. There's our grounding. There's our reference to creation. Way, way, way back, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him with a plan in mind for the outworking of the divine logos, the divine purpose of the Father. Without him was not anything made, and brothers and sisters, when we read this verse in verse 4, the King James Version translators have done us a grave disservice by writing him. You've probably crossed them out and written it. That was how Tyndale firstly translated it. That's how Tyndale did translate these verses. And King James men came along and wanted to put a different slant on it and they changed the it to he. We should change it back. Verse 3, all things were made by it, the plan. Without the plan was not anything made that was made. In the plan was life. Oh, what an understatement. And the life was the light of men. So in Adam's creation, God started off by making light. Day one, don't you treasure those Sunday school lessons? Let there be light. And the physical forces of light and darkness fought out their battle. And the ultimate equilibrium was that light would rule the day and darkness would rule the night. And here we've got another battle, another fight, but this time the battleground is in our hearts and Jesus Christ has come along with the light of knowledge to illuminate us. He's brought it into a dark world of gross sin and another battle is going to take place. Who's going to win? Light or dark? 
Well, John says in verse 5, Christ won it hands down. The light shineth in darkness. The light always dispels the darkness. The darkness comprehended it not. The word comprehended means blot out. It couldn't blot it out. It couldn't win. It had no hope. It was a hopeless challenge. Put them together and light will always win. And John is telling us here that the darkness of sin in men's heart tried to snuff out the light of Jesus and it failed miserably. And then John the Baptist came along in verses 6, 7 and 8 as a witness to this wonderful light. In verse 9 it says that the true light, i.e. not the type, the real deal light, our Lord Jesus Christ came into the world. Verse 10, he was in the world, the true light, and the world was made by him. It should be through him, but the world knew him not. They did not recognise him. What a tragedy. The world was made flesh, came into the world, and the world didn't know him. It was completely ignorant. Further, in verse 11, he came unto his own and they received him not. They rejected him. He came to his own. He came to his own home. He came to his people. He came to his family. He came to his friends. And they said, go away. And they've rejected the only begotten Son of God the Logos, the plan. They were ignorant and they rejected the plan of God. There was no room for him in their hearts. But, what a meaningful and deliberate word. Verse 12, but, as many as received him, to them he gave power, or as you'll see in your margin, as it should be, the right the privilege. You receive Christ, you have the right to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Which were born, unlike these circumstances in verse 13, not of blood, uh-uh, blood doesn't get you anywhere, nor of the will of men, nor of the will of flesh rather, nor of the will of man, but of God. So there's a threefold denial here of natural birth. Blood doesn't cut it. The will of flesh doesn't cut it. And the will of man doesn't cut it. Flesh doesn't contribute anything to the divine family, says John. Just as many as receive him. God just wants those that are reborn. It's not a matter of birth, but of rebirth. Not who your dad was, not who your mum was, not tribe you are from. It counts for absolutely nothing. Not birth, but rebirth. As many as receive him have the right. Second Corinthians 5, Paul writes, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. 
And now we can revert to the flow from verse 1. We pick it up again in verse 14. The word, that word, that plan, that purpose, that logos that was way, 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 way back there with God and was God, that word became flesh. God's purpose took human form. And the word, the logos, the purpose, all that was, all that was heavenly, all that was of God, all that belonged to eternity, all that was perfect and beautiful, became flesh. It became of earth. It became of men. It became dying in the form of the Son of God. John says, that's the divine genealogy of the Son of God. And that plan, that Logos, was made flesh and it came and dwelt with us, tabernacled with us. You consider the enormity of this, brothers and sisters. What he's saying here, God's plan before the mountains, before the earth, God's plan that was so interwoven with the divine father himself that the plan was God became flesh and tabernacled with me says John he dwelt with us with man in the same way in a really poor comparison as a type only that in the wilderness in the tabernacle the glory of God was seen in the midst of the camp. So the Logos glory was seen in the Son of God, tabernacling in the midst of Israel. And John says, I saw it. And it was incredible. Now, John Baptist is overwhelmed as well. Verse 15, he says, this was the core content of everything I said. John, bear witness of him and cried, cried out. The word cried there means shouted out. You look at your modern translations, it's it shouted. He yelled this out. You, you get the, the emotion behind what John Baptist is saying here. This is what I've been telling everyone. This is he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me. Why? Because he was before me. He was the Logos. He was the Word that has now been made flesh. Verse 16. And of his fullness have all we received and grace for grace. And brothers and sisters, those words grace for grace are just some of the most beautiful words. It's the same concept as in Psalm 23, where we read that my cup runneth over. It's grace upon grace upon grace 
upon grace. The NET version says it's one gracious gift on another. It's blessing on blessing on blessing. And they just keep going. It's an overflowing fullness that we have received from the Father of grace. And brothers and sisters, we can try and exaggerate things, but we can never, ever exaggerate the gracious love that the Father had for us. He loves us to bits. Verse 18. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. How true. No man has seen God at any time, not even Moses. Not even Moses, of whom God spake face to face, saw God. So Jesus can't be God, says John, because no one's seen God. Let's not get mixed up with all these Trinitarian problems with these verses. These verses are are brilliant, are gorgeous. Verse 18 tells us no problem with Trinitarian problems. Jesus is not God. But in looking at Jesus, we can see exactly what God is like. You want to know what God's like? Says John, then learn about his son. He hath declared him, and I want to show him to you. And that's his opening. He's structured his book. He's opened it. And with that objective and that premise and those principles, he's going to write a gospel that is completely different than any of the others, that leaves narrative, sacrifices narrative, and said, I want to know about Christ, how he thought, and I want to show you why I believed. I suspect that when John had finished those 18 verses, which I think are just some of the most wonderful in the whole of the scriptures, he would have been completely emotionally exhausted, completely overcome. God's plan, the plan of God, had become flesh and had come and dwelt with him. That, says John, is the divine genealogy of the Son of God. And he puts down his pen, having presented a side of Jesus we would never have conceived, were it not for the spirit mind of his servant John. The take-homes tonight... John presents important principles over useful narratives. I love Matthew, I love Mark, I love Luke. Where would we be without them? John says, they've nailed the details. I want to give you the why. And I want to tell you what he was like. I want to let you into his headspace. And I want to tell you why I believed. What a rich blessing, brothers and sisters, to know God's plan made flesh who dwelt amongst us. Can you think of a greater blessing? Can you think of a greater being? There is none. The God, Yahweh, 
the creator of the heaven and earth. He had one objective, one plan. It was so huge, so big and so interwoven with himself that it was him and we've just read about it and we understand it and we appreciate it and through that we have the power, no, not the power, the right to become his sons and daughters. Those who receive him will become children of God and brothers and sisters and perhaps especially young people I can't think of a more wonderful thing than becoming a son or daughter of the living God, the greatest being ever who has looked down upon this earth and offered us the opportunity to be with him as children. Thank you. As we consider John at his Lord's side, we are very mindful of three events that Jesus specifically shared with John. And not just John, but his three closest ones with Peter and James and John. And the first of them was the raising of Jairus' daughter. Christ was the first to bring life from the dead since the days of Elisha. John, the apostle, had already seen other resurrections from Christ. He'd seen the widow of Nain's son raised. He'd seen Lazarus. But this one was special, as he records it. This one was special because he was right there. He was right next to it. He was just meters away this girl was just there and John as he records this remembers seeing a dead body a body that had stopped breathing for some time start to breathe again I was there said John I was just there and therefore he could write in John chapter 1 in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The Lord of life was here. And the second occasion was the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John climbed the Mount Hermon, the heights of that mountain, and were eyewitnesses of Jesus' future majesty. And it was almost certainly at night, and they saw Christ's face shine like the sun, his raiment was white as light, a scene of unearthly radiance. It was absolutely beautiful. With him were Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, and then together they heard those wonderful words, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. And in this transformation, Jesus had a foretaste of that state which was to be his beyond the cross, and that's why John could write in John chapter 1 and verse 14, we beheld his glory, 
the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Two amazing occasions. But what about the third? On that last night, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane. Deliberately a garden, in deliberate contrast to that garden where long ago the battle against sin had been lost. And we note the repetition, if we just turn back a page to chapter 18, verse 1, we note that there were exactly five specific references to this garden. If you don't have these coloured in, it's very worthy, worthwhile to get a pencil and do this. Chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the book Kedron. Where was a garden? Reference number one. Chapter 18, verse 26. One of the servants of the high priest, being his kinsman, whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did not I see thee in the garden? Number two. Chapter 19 and verse 41. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, reference 3, and in the garden, reference 4, a new sepulchre wherein was never man yet laid. And finally, chapter 20, verse 15, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, reference five, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Brothers and sisters, none of the other gospel writers pick that up. None of them. None of them talk about a garden. John does. Five times. And in the garden, Jesus needs to pray. He's about to be bloodied. He's about to be bruised. And he goes to offer his last prayer to his God before he is arrested. And he takes three, Peter, James and John, with him a little further on from the rest. Peter, who literally just minutes before had protested, Though everyone forsake you, Jesus, I will never, ever, ever forsake you. All these will fall away, I won't. And James and John, who just recently had said, Jesus, we can drink of your cup. We can be baptised with the baptism that you can be baptised with. No problems, Jesus. And he takes those three with him by his side a little bit further. He selected the three who had the most boldly professed that they would serve Christ to the end and Jesus wanted them and he needed them at the time of his greatest need. I'm needing your help, he says. I'm finding this tough. Can you live up to your bold claims? And Jesus prays Please, Father, take this cup from me. And in agony, he prayed even more earnestly, brothers and sisters, sweat pouring down like great drops of blood to the ground. And in Jesus' 
anguish and travail. At the time of his absolute greatest need, they failed him and they all slept. And yes, it would have been the early hours of the morning and yes, it had been a tough week, but when Jesus needed the most, brothers and sisters, when he needed some support on this earth, when we needed someone at his side, they slept. Not once, not twice, but three times. Oh, John. And the occasion is recorded in Matthew, Mark and Luke, but John doesn't mention this at all. It's, it's not in this record. Why is that, brothers and sisters? Because he didn't see it. He slept and you might say, well, hang on, he didn't actually record Jairus either, the others did. And he didn't record the transfiguration the others did. And that is true. But for a man who dedicated the last nine chapters of his gospel to these events, wouldn't you have liked to read that prayer at the hands of John in this gospel? But he couldn't because he didn't hear it. You think of John 17, which we read just yesterday in our daily readings, and the beautiful entry into our Lord's mind as we read a whole chapter dedicated to a prayer, one of the most beautiful prayers on record that just opens up the Son of God and his mission for us. Thank you, John, for recording that. Wouldn't you love to have read about the prayer of the Son in the garden in all of its details? But he slept when our Lord needed him most. So in these three events, John was taught with Peter and James, Jesus had power over death. He was Lord of life, as he saw in the raising of Jairus' daughter. Secondly, that Christ would reign in glory, not witnessed on earth, as he saw from the transfiguration. But tragically, they would not comprehend the cross that came first, the anguish the immediacy, and they slept. But the Jews weren't sleeping. Judas and the soldiers arrive, and if we leave something in John, let's come back to Mark and chapter 14. Mark 14 and verse 43. And immediately, while he yet spake, cometh Judas one of the twelve, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And Jesus has already spoken about this. He's already predicted this event. And way back in verse 27, he had already told them, verse 27, Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. You'll all leave me. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. In fact, Jesus said in John's record in chapter 16, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you'll leave me alone. And in fulfilment of that, in Mark 14 and verse 50, we read, And they all forsook him and fled, every single one of them. When the going got tough, 
the tough ran away. And Jesus was all alone. He did not have, at this point, a single friend. From here on, no man would be of any help whatsoever. They had all left him. He was on his own. Now, when we come back to John, and we'll, we'll jump to John 18, we find that the Apostle John and Peter follow from a distance. John 18 and verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. That disciple was known unto the high priest and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. So John, it's certainly John, John the other disciple was known to the high priest and the servants. And so he got in and he let Peter into the palace as well. And the servant says in verse 17, Hey, you, aren't you also one of them? Aren't you also one of his disciples? So she knew that John was a disciple. John had always witnessed. He had always been open. He had always been happy to proclaim, I am of Christ. And he still was even in the house of the high priest, even on Christ's arrest. Yeah, I'm a disciple. But what did Peter do? No, I don't know the man. Who are you talking about? Jesus, who's that? I've never heard of him before. And in the pressure of the situation, Peter rejects his master. Not so, John. Have you noticed John's resolve? Have you ever contemplated what this man did right to the end? He was there in the palace, right at the end. And then if we pick up our reading, which happens to be today's daily reading, by a special coincidence, John 19. And we might pick it up in verse 16. Then delivered he them, him, therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. They took Jesus. And that word took there, John only uses three times in his gospel. The first of them was all the way back in chapter 1, when he says in verse 11, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. It's the same word. They rejected him in chapter 1. They received him not. But John says, not here they didn't. They were very happy to receive him. They took him and they led him away to crucify him, says John. What disgraceful irony. They had rejected him and then received him to kill him. And Simon of Cyrene helped carry the cross not Peter, not John. John would have watched this. He would have seen that from afar. He would have thought, that should be me. It could be me. I wish it was me. I want to help Christ carry his cross. But he didn't. And another man carried that to Golgotha. And they crucified our Lord Jesus Christ, 
the plan, the logos, the destiny, the Word made flesh, the Word tabernacled amongst us, it dwelt with us and his family, his people, killed the word tabernacling amongst us. And in chapter 19 and verse 19, Pilate writes a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Verse 20, this title was read, many, read by many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin, three languages, Jesus dying for people from all nations. Everyone could read it. Here is the King of the Jews. And finally, after all of that, John comes to the foot of the cross, the only one, the only one of the twelve. Every other chosen disciple had abandoned their Lord, and John is there watching his master, watching the nails through the dark of the time. And as he looks up to Christ on the pole, he notices two other people one on his left, one on his right, criminals, robbers. And his mind goes back and he thinks, that's where I wanted to be with my brother James. We wanted to be there. We wanted to be on his left and his right. That was our ambitious goal, to be on his side. And I've let him down and my brother's not even here. Weren't we undeserving of that place? And it's as if Jesus is saying, John, if you want to rule with me, you have to start at the foot of the cross, not by my side. We read in John 19 in verses 23 and 24 that they split up his clothes, casting lots for the one piece seamless tunic. Brothers and sisters, since the time that Mary had first wrapped her newborn in swaddling clothes, don't you think she would have dressed him ever since? Every year, maybe, there would have been a new cloak, some new garments. The Son of Man would never wanted a new coat from his mother. Had she made this one-piece tunic for him? Did she watch them part Jesus' clothes that she had provided him over the years? Did she watch as the four soldiers triumphantly take the seamless tunic and by lots cast and work out who would take it home? And one of them triumphantly takes it and runs away. The cloak that she had lovingly made for her son. Imagine Jesus watching his clothes being taken by others. There's nothing more final than that, is there? I won't be needing them again. 
And as the garments had been given to him from swaddling clothes through to his final maturity, so garments were given back. Jesus hadn't been born with anything. He hadn't owned anything. He didn't die with anything. Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked he returned. Now in John 19 and verse 25, we find John with four women. Verse 25, there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and fourthly, Mary Magdalene. And brothers and sisters, the astute John mentions Jesus' mother five times. And if you've got another colouring pencil, it's, it's worthwhile colouring them in too, because a pattern is emerging. Verse 25, there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, first reference. And his mother's sister, second reference. Mary, the wife of Cleopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother, third reference. And the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, fourth reference. Woman, behold thy son. Then he saith to the disciple, Behold thy mother. Five references. Surely deliberate. And brothers and sisters, I just feel that John's mind did this deliberately as an echo for the start of the Gospels. The other three Gospels had already been written. John had read them. John was conversant with them. He knew what they wanted to achieve. And he's, he's creating an echo here, right at the end of the four Gospels, with the start. Come back with me to Matthew chapter 2. Just leave something in John. Come back with me to Matthew and chapter 2. You're going to need another colour. Matthew 2 and verse 11. When they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. They saw the boy Jesus with Mary. If you're colouring, colour that in. The young child with Mary, his mother. Verse 13. And when they departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother, Second reference. Verse 14, so he arose and he took the young child and his mother. Third reference. Verse 20, saying, arise and take the young child and his mother. Fourth reference. And verse 21, and so he arose and took the young child and his mother. Five references. And John is creating a picture here. He's, he's tying together the start of the Gospels with the end. And so we see this composite picture of five references to the woman. 
in Matthew 2 and John 19. Five references to the son, the seed, the seed of the woman. Five references to the garden. John is recreating an Old Testament picture. He's deliberately recreating the picture of Genesis 3 with the number of grace Genesis 3 is being fulfilled and the serpent was about to bruise the head, the seed rather, of the woman's heel. But before the serpent would have its short-lived victory, a carer for Jesus' mother needed to be found. If we come back to John 19, We find in those wonderful verses that we've perhaps already coloured that he says, Woman, behold thy son, and to the disciple, behold thy mother. And so he appoints his first cousin John, his confidant, the one he loved, the one who perhaps got him the most, the one he could most closely relate to, to care for his mum. And now the Son of Man could die, knowing that his mother would be looked after. And John would have cared for her his whole life. There's no record of John travelling on great missionary journeys while Mary was still alive. He generally stayed at home. And surely he provided for her. Surely he looked after her. Surely he cared for her in her age. Surely he was present when she died. Surely he buried her. And surely the son looked down from his father's right hand and said, Thank you, John. You know, the only woman that John refers to as a mother in his entire gospel is Mary. The, the only woman that he refers to as a mother is Mary. There's only one other mention, and it's, it's a conceptual reference in John chapter 3 by Nicodemus about a man going back into his mother's womb. Every other mother in John is talking about Mary. Even his own mother, Salome, at the cross is titled Mary's sister. The only mother is Mary, and that's the respect that he had for the mother of the Son of God. And then in verse 30 of John 19, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. He hears the last cry, and then there's no more breathing. The other records merely state that there was a loud cry. John records what Jesus said, it is finished. Why? Because he was there. He heard it. And we know that. Let's come down to verse 35. He that saw it, bear record. I was there, he says. You can believe me because I was an, I was an eyewitness. His record is true. He knoweth that he saith true. what he saith is true, that ye might believe. I was there, says John. I heard Jesus say that. It is finished. And John could later write in 1 John 3, verse 16, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. 
and John watched it. Every single breath, every cry, he heard it and he felt it and he saw the breathing stop and he saw his Lord die for him. And so as we stand with John at the foot of the cross, we see the kindest, most noble, most wonderful, most upright man who had ever lived, who spent his life in service to others, who spent in life in service for us, die on a stake. And they laid him in a tomb, and finally the Son of Man had somewhere to lay his head. But the story doesn't stop there, does it? The story of John, the story of Christ, the story of our redemption doesn't finish with a dead king. Because very, very, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, no one else was moving, the city was quiet, a woman got up, Mary Magdalene, and went to the tomb. And the tomb would have been dark, and it would have been hard, and probably cold and desperately unwelcoming, but the tomb was empty. And she runs to Peter and John. They've taken him away, the Lord, out of the sepulchre. We don't know where they have laid him, she says. And so Peter and John run to the tomb. Let's pick that up in chapter 20 and verse 6. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulchre, and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. They run to the sepulchre, to the tomb, and they see it's empty as well, because the tomb could not hold the Son of God. But John goes further than that, because John's perceptive and he gets it. Look at how he describes the state of the tomb. Verse 6, Then cometh Simon Peter following him, went into the sepulchre, and he seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. John is very careful to record what happened. So the linen body clothes that covered Christ's whole body were just laying there by itself. It's almost like your teenager has got up on a Sunday morning and thrown his pyjamas on the bed if they get there. They're just, the linen clothes are just there. But not so the head. The head has been carefully intricately wrapped up roll by roll by roll and carefully placed in a place all by itself John got that and John got that the head was now clearly and discernibly different from the body Christ the head is now the king of the world he towers above the body in importance and he's alive for evermore. And later on in our memorial service, we'll have some choral pieces that will allow us to 
to celebrate and to, to meditate on that resurrection. And so, brothers and sisters, as Adam had slept and given life to Eve in Genesis 2, so Christ had slept and facilitated life for his bride, even life eternal. And Peter and John believed, and they went home. And we too can believe. Like them, at that point, we haven't seen our Lord, have we? But we believe. We know. We know he is alive. And this morning we have as a token of his life, of his presence, the bread of his body and the wine of his life-giving blood. Our absent Lord is with us even now. He was dead, but he is alive again. Thank you. all seven of them and the interesting thing is that these men who had left their fishing boats to go and become fishers of men now couldn't catch fish anymore and Jesus calls to them from the shore and he says children as well you might and then he gives them an instruction cast your net on the right side and you will find you see, children, it's not that the fish weren't there. They just needed Jesus' help to find them. And they were unable to draw the net in for the multitude of fish when they listened to Jesus and hearkened to his voice. And in verse 7, the penny drops. And John is the first to recognise the risen Lord. That a miracle had occurred was plainly evident to John. There was only one person capable of exercising such power, in which case, thinks John, the person on the shore must be the Son of God. It is the Lord. And unlike the last occasion, this time the net did not break and every single fish came to shore. Now, Jesus has some lessons here. He has some lessons for Peter and for John. And he starts with Peter. He says in verse 10, Jesus saith to them, Bring of the fish which ye have now caught. And back goes Simon Peter to the boat and gets the net and single-handedly, brothers and sisters, draws the entire net to shore, to land, to Christ. This was the net, brothers and sisters, so full of fish that back in verse 6, Peter and all of the fishermen on the boat couldn't pull it in. This was the net so full of fish that in verse 8, they had to ask another boat with more helpers to come and to help them pull it in. 
And yet when Peter leaves the things of the world behind and finally comes to the shore and listens to his Lord, under the Lord's direction, he could all by himself, single-handedly, bring the entire haul of fish to land and with the net not breaking. Wow. So you can imagine, brothers and sisters, and young people, what we can do when we draw nigh to our God, when we work with him and not against him, when we listen to his words, when we get him, when we know what he wants, and we are just humble vessels in his service. Go and get the fish. And he brought the entire net. Now there's also a lesson for John. A lesson from the exact same verse and a lesson that John would never forget. Verse 11, Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of great fishes and hundred and fifty and three. And for all there were so many, yet was the net not broken. And there are the lessons for John. Did you notice the details? You could almost put a little number next to each little fact in that verse. It was full of great fish. Even numbers them. There were 153. And then specifies the net was not broken. So John says, Jesus, I've got some lessons for you too. You see, this, this net... Every single fish, John, in this net is worthy of being caught. Everyone was a great fish. Everyone, John, is worth being a disciple. Every fish was a magnificent catch. There was no minnows in here. Every one of those fish you could take home and boast about. I caught a big fish. Every fish, every fish is worth being a disciple. And every potential disciple, John, is a great fish. And how many were there? Well, there were 153. And 153 is the exact number of soldiers, of men, who were dispatched up the hill to bring the prophet Elijah down. You know this record. We'll just put it on the slide to help us. Second of Kings 1. Go and get Elijah. So verse 9, the king sent unto him a captain of 50 and his 50. Elijah answered, let fire come down from heaven. See, that's where James and John got their warrant. Let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. And there came fire and consumed him and his fifty. And again he sent unto him another, a second, captain of fifty with his fifty. And Elijah answered, Let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. And fire from God consumed him and his fifty. And he sent again a captain of a third fifty, with his fifty. Behold, 
there came fire and burnt up the two captains of former 50s with their 50s. Please let my life be precious in thy sight. Have you noticed the repetition in that? Maybe one day colour it in. Eight times. Brothers and sisters, it's verbose. Never shortens it. Every single time. A captain. And his 50. 51 people. And there were three of them. There were 153 people. And who sent the soldiers? King Ahaziah. And who was King Ahaziah king of? Says Second Kings 1. He was king of Samaria. These were all Samaritans. Every one of them. And 153 Samaritans got dispatched up the mountain to bring Elijah down. And he brought fire down on two of those groups before one of them had the sanity to have a conversation. And that's how many fish were in the net. And Jesus says, John, these are the people that you tried to burn up. And I don't want to burn them up. Because the exact number that Elijah was dealing with, I've said, are now in the net and wanting to be saved. Don't let any of them go, John. Luke chapter 9 says, John did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And John never forgot that. And for his work in the Acts and his principles in his epistles, and his outreach in the book of Revelation, he always sought to save every single person. But there was a third point of that verse, wasn't there? The net was not broken. And, says Christ, I don't want to lose anyone. I'm not going to have a great catch and be happy that I got all of these and let them go. That's not how I measure success, says Jesus. I want you all. Every single person of us. He is not willing that any should perish. And there's a lesson, John. You can, you know, you can do it your way. You can leave the nets on your side of the boat. You can get no fish. Or you can do it my way, and you can try and save them all, so that none would be lost. It's up to you, John. Which do you want? Every fish was valuable. I don't want to lose even one. Do we think like that, brothers and sisters, and young people? Do we regard everyone in our ecclesia as a great awesome fish, a fish you'd go home and boast about, as a fish that Christ wants? Or do we look around our ecclesia? Have we looked around this hall today and treated some as just minnows? I don't need to talk to that person. He's not a real fish. That person shouldn't even be in the net why are they here? 
prefer not to engage with that person. And so, brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, if we have lost fish in our ecclesia, then we need to work hard to find them. And if we have cast out fish in our ecclesia, we need to work hard to bring them back. Because woe betide us if we get to the judgment seat of our Lord Jesus Christ and we're in his presence and between us and him is a fish, a fish that we rejected and a fish that Christ died for. That is the lesson that John took from this episode. We note in the rest of the chapter that there's the wonderful exchange between our Lord and Peter and John. And there's the clear suggestion in verse 22 that John would live a long life. And what we're going to do is we'll just briefly pick up John's journey in the book of Acts where we find that he teams up with Peter. In fact, interestingly, he has always worked with Peter. Here's his work in the Gospels. I suspect you know all of these. John was at the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. He was there in the house. He was sent with Peter to prepare the Last Supper, the, the Passover. No doubt Christ really wanted to entrust that job to someone that he could really trust. He followed Jesus into the high police palace to see the trial. They were the only two there that returned when all the rest fled. Mary told Peter and John of the risen Lord. They ran together to see the empty tomb. John recognized Christ. Peter swam to Christ. Peter said, Lord, what about this man? Speaking of John. These two, they had been partners through all of the Gospels. And I'm sure just occasionally it wasn't without some challenge and some competitiveness because we're all like that, aren't we? But these two had worked together and that partnership continues afterwards. It doesn't stop. See, afterwards it was John and Peter together that healed the lame man at the gate called Beautiful in Acts chapter 3. And again, later on, colour them in. There's four references. It's very beautiful. You, you normally just give all the credit to Peter because he's the one that happens to speak. But John is mentioned there four times with Peter. They did that work together. The subsequent chapter in chapter 4, they were both together, imprisoned. They protested. They teamed up to fearlessly preach the gospel in Jerusalem. They suffered beatings and imprisonment. These are the same two that fled in a panic when the guards came. And now they've lined up for a beating. What's the difference? The resurrection. That is the power of the resurrection. They went together to Samaria in Acts 8 to preach and to pass on the Holy Spirit to the Samaritans. 
to the people that John previously wanted to burn. He had learned the lesson of the 153 fish. And then Paul, just so eloquently and beautifully, and we thank him for this, describes these two, Peter, Cephas, and John, and James, the Lord's half-brother, as pillars in the ecclesia in Galatians chapter 2. These people worked together. Peter and John, they were partners in what they did. And they were very different people. They were one of the New Testament's greatest friendships and working partnerships. And interestingly, Peter, in the book of Acts, is not mentioned with any other named person except for John. Did you know that? Peter in the book of Acts is only ever mentioned with a named partner as John. No one else. These two only worked together. John was Peter's right-hand man. And they are very, very different. And we only got to think of the, the apostles. John was reflective. Peter, of course, we love to describe as impetuous. John stopped at the tomb. Peter ran into the tomb. John said, it is the Lord. Peter dived into the sea. They were different. We love them both. We love them because of their differences. We love them because of their love, which was manifested in different ways. But brothers and sisters, that is the beauty of different people working together. And that can have very powerful results. And we need that in each other too. We need that in our ecclesias, in our committees, in our arranging brethren groups, in our friendships. And we should value that difference and that diversity when people come together and think differently and have different skills and backgrounds and experiences. And we can share and come up with a common good outcome. That is a wonderful thing. And it's what these two people did during the ministry and afterwards. Amazing things can happen when we work with people. And then, brothers and sisters, John lost his brother James to martyrdom in Acts 12. James must have been a huge influence in the first century Jerusalem Ecclesia to attract this attention. Maybe he was still the son of Boanerges and he was selected by Herod. He wasn't a nobody. And Herod would have made a spectacle of this and John would have been close to it. And both of them, James and John, would have had Christ's words ringing in their ears, ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptised withal shall ye be baptised. And James was the big brother. While we're growing up, generally big brothers are bigger and stronger, and we look up to them. And John is the only apostle still alive. He's old, he's nearly a hundred, He's had 60 years of discipleship and he's in prison 
Let's go to Revelation chapter 1 and pick up his words. Revelation chapter 1. We read in verse 9, I, John, who am also your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. There are two things that really strike me from that verse. I've put the ESV translation on the screen above us and the two things really hit me every single time. The third is, is the fact that he was there for the word of God and the ESV you can see reads on account of. He was there because of the truth. He was there because of what he believed. He wasn't a day visitor. He wasn't on a pleasant Mediterranean cruise. He hadn't called in and been left behind. He was there because of his belief in the kingdom of God, because of his service for the Father. I am a political prisoner based on my teachings. And that's amazing. But then, brothers and sisters, he says in the opening few lines of that verse, I, John, who am also your brother and companion in that tribulation. The ESV has a partner in the tribulation. He counts us as fellow partakers of his tribulation. Us. I am genuinely embarrassed every time I read that. Here's John, aged 100, beaten, a political prisoner on a far-off island with no one with him. And he writes to me, we're in this together. And I just think that's such a kind line from John. And I'm always struck by John's loyalty. He's a hundred. He's done a lot of things. He's never given up. He's never stopped. He's never missed a class. He's still going. And I think that's perhaps something that we can take with us from this weekend. To never stop, brothers and sisters. To never give up we believe something special we have the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ and as we read on the screen though our bodies are dying our spirits are being renewed every day none of us are getting any younger are we thankfully we've got some really great young people with us who make us feel a bit younger but let's be like John and and keep going and going and going every single day was a day for Christ Yes, his body was aging, and the spring in his step had long disappeared. But every day was for Christ. His spirit was renewed every day. And in AD 96, at nearly 100 years old, he's still zealous. He's still passionate. He's still there. He's still a believer. And I just want to reach out to the older cohort who is amongst us and say thank you for your example. And if you're 70 or 80 or maybe 
90 years old and you're here today, thank you. We, we love that example. And if you're 70 or 80 or even 90 years old and you're going to the Sunday lectures and the Wednesday night classes, and I know that's not always easy. We know that. We know it's not always possible. We accept that. But if you're there, thank you for that example. I think John would have been there as well. At the age of roughly 100, there is nothing more meaningful than truth for John. Let us keep that with both hands. And then Christ gave the beloved John a vision beyond any other in this amazing book of Revelation. See, John sees his Lord again. Verse 17 of chapter 1. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. He laid his right hand upon me, saying, Unto me, fear not, I am the first and the last. Jesus laid his right hand on, on John, and he, he felt the touch for the first time in 60 years, how John had missed that touch. He recalled leaning on the bosom at the Last Supper. He recalled the interactions on the shore with the 153 fish and then Jesus was gone and now I can feel his touch again and how special that would have been. And then Christ revealed the future of the world to John in a simply stunning series of interwoven visions and seals and trumpets and vials and beasts the prophetic extension of the Roman iron legs of the prophecy of Daniel. And the beasts in particular are a remarkable portrayal in Revelation. John saw this. He saw a dragon, a great red dragon, representing pagan Rome. And beside the dragon was a woman, a woman waiting to give birth, waiting to give birth to a man-child who would Christianise pagan Rome and the dragon wouldn't want that and he swishes his tail and paws at the woman, waiting to eat that child as soon as it's born. John saw all of that. And then John saw a beast, a beast rearing up out of the sea, dripping with water, pouring out words of blasphemy representing this new Christian Roman Empire to be later superseded by the Scarlet Beast after the formation of the European Union. And there's the Union in all their glory in Versailles in March this year. And then John saw a dragon that moved from Rome to the east and set up this mighty, mighty military capital, an amazing city in Constantinople. And it too was strong, but it lasted until 1453 when it fell and all of those there of might and strength and religion moved to Moscow, to Russia, where 
that dragon is this day. And then John saw another beast, a beast that came up out of the, land, out of the earth, a beast full of deceit, a beast that looked like a cute little lamb, but a beast that had horns and spake like a dragon that killed many with fire, a beast that was the Holy Roman Empire lasting just over a thousand years. And simultaneously there was an image to the beast of the sea that would then morph into the false prophets of the Pope and the papacy over which Pope Francis presides today. John saw all of that. We get a headache going to our classes on Revelation. You think how John felt after seeing the graphic scenes of all of those beasts appear and interact and wage their wars and fight and speak blasphemy and the lives of the saints that were lost in the process. And we, we're the beneficiaries. Today, in 2022, we can see the Russian dragon, can't we? We can see the European beast seems to change every week, a bit messier every week. New prime minister, new position, different position on oil, something's happening there. Europe's a mess. We know where it's going. And we can see the popish false prophet exactly as the beloved John wrote. Do you believe Revelation 16? I know we do. Because what he saw 2,000 years ago is exactly what we see today. We see in our social media outlets, in our media outlets, all of this coming to pass. This man is a classic. He's just come to the scene in a big way in the last few weeks. He's the Russian general, Sergei Surovakin. He's the new overall commander of the Russian forces in Ukraine. And he's been put there because his predecessor wasn't doing a good enough job. He's got a nickname. His nickname is General Armageddon. And he has a fearsome, terrible reputation. He's a person that does the stuff he's told to do, whether it's good or bad. Britain's Defence Ministry has called this general brutal and corrupt. And he has one job, nail Ukraine, because that's what Ezekiel 38 requires. John saw this. He saw the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. And I think we'll see the next little bit in chapter 16. Behold, I come as a thief. And then John, he saw this wonderful, wonderful marriage of our Lord Jesus Christ to his bride, the saints from all ages. And they were glad and they rejoiced and they gave honour to him, all of them, from all of the ages, Jew and Gentile, 
bond and free, male and female, all of you and me, together with John in chapter 19 as one with our Lord Jesus Christ. And John is absolutely overcome. Do you remember these verses in Rev 19? Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And John, John fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not, I am thy fellow servant, worship God. Don't you worship me. He was so overcome with the picture of the marriage of the bride to his groom, her groom, of a marriage of our Lord Jesus Christ who John knew and worked with and would return, that he fell at his feet and worshipped the messenger. He was so, so overcome. And then John saw the period of the, the millennium and beyond in chapters 20 and 21. Beyond the millennium with the new Jerusalem Let's come to Revelation 21. We have there in verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is, this is beyond the millennium, which was in chapter 20. We're now talking post-millennium. I saw a, a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea, no more people, no more mortals. We are now all immortal. Verse 2, And I, John, saw the holy city, the saints, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And verse 16 says it was in the shape of a cube. Its length and its width and its height were all the same. It was a cube. And the only shape in the scriptures that is a cube is, of course, the most holy place and that's where the saints are we're past the veil it's been opened and we are all in there with our Lord in the most holy place and they celebrate in verse 3 I heard a great voice out of heaven saying behold the tabernacle of God is with men he will dwell with them and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. When did we read that? Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. 
you can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen. Thank you.